0: You're listening to the Co-Main Event podcast and now your hosts Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts podcast. I'm your co-host from bleacherreport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always. From MMA Junkie in USA today it's your friend and mine Mr. Ben Folks. Ben it's uh roughly 10 days until the Pride FC co-main event podcast drinking game challenge.
1: Yeah, how's your training coming?
0: Have you put your affairs in order? I guess is my first question. Like have you drawn up a will any anything like that a living trust?
1: Yeah, I still need to decide uh which of my two daughters I will leave my collection of uh Expensive antique swords. Which one of them is going to get to inherit the uh, weapons room in my house? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we'll have a some sort of fight, some sort of combat, trial by combat to decide that. Feels only fitting. And then I'll be ready. But I, I'm concerned about you. I'm looking at you right here. You're sitting here in your old navy socks and your your quaint little sweater, your Mr. Rogers sweater. Yep. What I'm looking at here does not look like a man who is ready to confront a Pride FC Drinking Challenge in Middle Age. Can anyone truly be ready? Honestly? I stay ready, so I ain't got to get ready.
0: Well, that's one thing I do know is true about you. I can promise you I probably will not wear this sweater to the Pride FC Drinking Game Challenge. Too
1: too cumbersome to take off and whip around your head while shouting woo?
0: Yeah, yes. I think it'll hold the stains. I think it'll hold a lot of stains.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's going to show some stains.
0: I'm going to need to wear, like, maybe some latex. Maybe something in, in vinyl. Something that can be hosed off yeah easily hosed off
1: see now you're thinking a few steps ahead that's a man who's who's getting himself mentally prepared getting his mind right for the pride fc drinking challenge
0: i'm doing what i can expect the unexpected i think is uh is my only rule of thumb at this point
1: those people who still want to get down with the pride fc drinking challenge and join us on friday march 9th is that that's march 9th right that's that's when it's going down 8 p.m in the one true time zone you got to get with us on Patreon.com slash event. Guess how many patrons we're up to now, Jed? How many? 424. 424? That's that's almost 425. <laughs> that is almost 425. Very astute on your part. So we thank each and every one of them. You're what makes this possible. And uh, we look forward to all of us committing a kind of sort of unintentional mass suicide via alcohol poisoning together.
0: Yay! Yay! We got music again this week from our friend the fifth element a music producer from fort worth texas if you like what you hear from him on the show this week you can check out more over on the twitter.com at the fifth element or the facebook.com slash at the fifth element or hell you can go to soundcloud.com at the fifth element official you all know by now that's the word the with an a that as always, you can do the Co-Main Event Podcast a serious solid by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show over on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you listen to the show on. That stuff really does help our ranking and our rating. So lend us a hand if you've got a few minutes and write us a review. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. Ben, we're moving quickly here because we've got a lot to talk about. Yes, we do. In round number one, Jeremy Stevens nabbed a win on national television this weekend after multiple illegal blows, once again proving that perhaps the great poet Everlast had it right in 1994 when he did proclaim in verse, it ain't a crime if you don't get caught. And in round number two, Conor McGregor is either so rich he might never fight again, or he might fight twice in the UFC this year, and oh yeah, he allegedly already offered to step in to save UFC 222 this weekend, and why on earth is he wearing his turtleneck like he's the Hamburglar? And in round number three, despite the universe's best efforts, the aforementioned Conor McGregorless UFC 222 is still happening on Saturday, live and decidedly not free on pay-per-view. Seriously, you guys... At what point do we cross the line from being hardcore MMA fans to just being Mark's in Dana White's long-standing confidence game? All that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of Listener Mail. Listener Mail. Ben, the first piece of Listener Mail this week comes to us from the Stinger. Oh yeah?
1: Steve Borden. Huh. Okay, well, I, I appreciate Sting using his real name. When he writes it, well, this is serious business. He wants to keep it low profile. He wants to get in listener mail on its merits. He doesn't want to throw (laughs) his name around. That's right. He doesn't want to get in just
0: as a former member of the Blade Runners (laughs) with uh, Jim Helwig.
1: I appreciate that.
0: All right, let's see what let's see what the stinger has to say here. He says, "Can you please explain the downfall of Michael Joseph Perry?" First, he went from being racist adjacent to a corner man who went to the Fox News School of Indecency. Then he became the lovable throwback cutting WWF promos whilst cage side. After that, he's a guy who has a compelling backstory. And finally, it seems like he's been exposed as a one-dimensional fighter in his last two fights. Ben, that's kind of a harsh indictment of uh, of Platinum Mike Perry. would yeah, you say,
1: PMP? I'm not sure exposed is the word I would use. And a part of me feels like... This is not necessarily new information. Like, we saw the fight that uh, Alan Joban had against Mike Perry, and he, I think, showed what a lot of us suspected, which is that Mike Perry is one of those guys, if you can resist getting pulled into his kind of fight, he is beatable. You you know, you're probably not going to put that guy away, and I think we saw that again against Max Raven and in the last loss against Santiago Ponzinibbio, he's a tough out. You're probably going to have to go to the scorecards to beat that guy, but he can be beat. It's still, though... I wonder how much of it is that other people are just figuring Mike Perry out or that Mike Perry doesn't have the full compliment that he needs. And how much of it is, for one thing, he's been really damn active and maybe burning himself out a little bit. And for another thing, maybe sometimes I think we see this where a guy buys into this concept of himself as a certain kind of fighter. And then that's the only thing he wants to do. We've seen it with guys who are kind of into like bonus chasing type styles like Leonard Garcia used to do. And he was the first one to admit that he got pulled into that mindset where he thought, this is all people want to see from me. This is all I'm going to do. And it did not necessarily lend itself to a lot of wins.
0: Yeah, I think you might be on to something there with that final point, especially when you take a look at how this fight against Max Griffin played out. Now, Max Griffin comes into this thing, as I believe was mentioned on the broadcast, as... The longest shot underdog on the on the main card against Mike well, the main Perry. I mean, like four fights. Right, but still, he's he's four out of four there. Fourth or first place. Wait, last place or first place if you're the biggest underdog on the card? Let's just move on. So Mike Perry's supposed to win this thing, clearly, and which is kind of a, a you know, maybe that's a different situation than either the Alan Joban loss or the Santiago Ponzinibbio loss. Like, this seemed like, especially with the event going down uh, in in Mike Perry's stomping grounds down there in Florida, like, he was supposed to start the main card off with a big KO win over Max Griffin. You look at how this thing actually went down, where, as you said, maybe the blueprint is out there now on how to beat Mike Perry, because Max Griffin is following that blueprint in this fight. He's got a reach advantage. He's quicker than Mike Perry. Uh, he's moving around the cage maybe a little bit better than mike perry and he's just gonna stick and move and does so uh pretty well i would say in this fight but then you look at some of the exchanges in this thing particularly the end of the first round where mike perry gets himself in a clinching situation kind of through a scramble uh but you know one way or another got himself into this wrestling situation ends up taking max griffin down pretty easily and transitions to the mount he's in the mount as this uh as the first round comes to an end. And so I wonder if you're right, Ben, I wonder if, you know, not that Mike Perry comes in with a, with a, like a sterling grappling pedigree or anything like that. But I wonder, you know, maybe Mike Perry has convinced himself that uh, he's a one punch knockout artist and that's it. Because I feel like had he maybe gone back to the grappling well, a little bit more often against Max Griffin, he could have at least, you know, made this thing a little bit more competitive instead of losing the, unanimous decision whatever it was like 29-27 and 30-27 across the board.
1: Yeah, and I think we've seen that before with some fighters where punching power can be kind of the siren song for them because on one hand, it gives you this constant chance to win. Like you don't need to be up ahead on the scorecards, you don't need to get to a certain position to win. Every round starts standing, you always have a chance to land that one big punch and win. And we saw that against uh, in the Santiago Panzanibio fight where for the most part the Ponzi scheme is out there kind of out-fighting him, but every once in a while, Mike Perry can land one, and legs go wobbly, and you get reminded, okay, at any point, he's always a threat to end this. And I think sometimes those guys kind of fall in love with that idea, and that's all they're really looking for. The The whole fight becomes a three-round quest to pile up those kind of opportunities rather maybe than just looking to see all the different ways that the fight could go and exploiting any advantage as you might see it pop up. I don't know if that's exactly the case here. And again, you know, he, the Ponzinibbio fight was in December. This one's in February before that, you know, he, he had fought, uh, you know, three times 2017 looks like before some of it before he got in the UFC, but like five times the year before I understand you're hot right now. You're trying to make that money. But you could also just be spreading yourself a little thin.
0: Yeah, he fought four times from December seventeenth, two thousand sixteen, to December sixteenth, two thousand seventeen. So four fights in almost exactly one year, which is a lot. Uh, and you know what? It's you know, maybe we're just getting a, a a more complete picture of the kind of fighter or the like the kind of prospect Mike Perry is here, Ben. Because it's not like it's not like the guy took the UFC by storm in terms of his fighting ability. Really, he came into the UFC at seven and zero, but that was he collected a bunch of wins at, at places called Florida Championship Fighting and Square Ring Promotions you know, oh, yeah, stuff like that. Then he, you know, he only got Granddaddy two, win- of them all. two wins in a row in the UFC before he loses to Alan Joban and then two more uh, before he gets on this current two-fight losing streak. So um, clearly Mike Perry has something about him that makes us want to watch him fight, like both, I think, through his like slugging persona and kind of just by being a strange cat outside the cage uh you mean
1: getting real close to the mirror looking into his own eyes trying to see the pilot of the vessel
0: yep yeah that's that kind of thing that's just one example about uh some of the reasons mike perry seems like an interesting guy but uh you know we might just be getting a a full picture of him now as an athlete and and it would be kind of a long shot if mike perry turned out to be totally bizarre kind of fun to watch fight and also the champion. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like that just doesn't happen too very often. So it's possible that now, what, six or seven fights into his UFC career, we're just starting to get a, a full picture of the guy.
1: Well, and doesn't something like this just make you think that the UFC might go back to the drawing board uh matchup wise for Mike Perry?
0: Well, yeah, and like I was kinda wondering about the matchmaking here, watching him get picked apart by Max Griffin, you know. Uh for years and years the UFC had uh Joe Silva as the matchmaker. And for whatever reason, it just seemed like he spun gold all the time. Uh, now you got Sean Shelby and Mick Maynard, right? Right. As the two matchmakers in the UFC, uh, both who seem like great guys and experienced matchmakers. But it just occasionally does feel like we get a different uh, philosophy or something uh, in the matchmaking. And, and you know, it, it seemed like they were trying to build Mike Perry up with this fight. But he goes out there and, and like stylistically, stylistically, excuse me, it turned out to be uh, a tough matchup for him. So it is, it is interesting to contemplate sometimes like different matchmakers and different uh, ideologies in terms of putting these fights together. Next question this week comes to us from Eric Murphy. He writes, anyone else buying the Bricklayer's Reebok fight kit? I feel like out of anyone on this last Fox card, Alir Latifi got the most career juice out of his fight versus OSP. He could stab that highlight choke drop forever. He could do worse than to have to sell a foreign human fire hydrant with heavy hands. It's worked so far for Mark Hunt. I know the light heavyweight division is is thinnest on parchment paper, but who would like to see Sweden... Who wouldn't like to see Sweden's... Oh, wait. Who, who would you like to see Sweden's second son fight next? Perhaps Sweden's first son? Eh? What? Hashtag woodwatch. Or are we still on team shut the whole division down?
1: <laughs> You're going to really go out here. Sweden's got two... Fighters in the division that they're excited about and you're gonna to try to match them up against each other. Come on cruel. now. That would
0: just be cruel. It's just
1: unnecessary. You know what? I I am into the whole bricklayer thing that happened at this event.
0: Yeah. It was a good night for Alir Latifi fans. He goes
1: out there, just hammering those anvils at, at OSP. Looks like he's gonna get a knockout, and then instead settles for the guillotine, chokes him unconscious, even as OSP is trying to tap there at the end, drops him flat on the mat. And then gets weirdly aggressive, sort of, with a, a kind of perplexed Daniel Cormier. Who, for a while, I love the response from Daniel Cormier. First trying to play it play it cool, commentator-wise. Mm-hmm. And then drops it and says, come on, man. They must love giving me free money. They're going to put me in there with Alir Latifi. <laughs> Already I'm into this fight. And then when you add that they both look like just... Uh, you know, the, the fire hydrant with heavy hands kind of, uh, body type. Yeah, sure. Like you take a couple human air conditioning units and bash them against each other. I will watch that. Especially if the division ends up in a situation where John Jones is going to be out for a while and we don't know what the hell to do. We are just trying to entertain ourselves in the meantime. Hey, that could be the best thing to happen to Alir Latifi.
0: Yeah. On its face when he first does that call out. And by the way, with the accent and the voice, I feel like Alir Latifi it sounds like he should be voicing like a sly cartoon fox, kind of. <laughs> uh, but the call-out of Daniel Cormier on its face, you're like, oh, that's ridiculous, right? The bricklayer against Daniel Cormier for the title, I roll. Seems like just yesterday, Lear Latifi went out there and got knocked out by Ryan Bader, uh, favored to win the, pri- or the Bellator current heavyweight. Knocked out P. bad.
1: Knocked out so bad, he just, like, arm-wrapped himself as he went
0: down. But... Like when you start thinking about it, we have no idea what's about to happen at light heavyweight, especially with Cormier moving up to fight Stipe Miocic this summer. Anything could happen. It's totally not out of the question that Daniel Cormier gets beat by Miocic, kind of slinks back to the light heavyweight division, ends up taking on a five and one Alir Latifi, number one contender for the title uh, when he comes back. Maybe one word of caution that I would say about getting too excited for that fight. If Daniel Cormier is really... Serious about retiring on his 40th birthday is the, uh, the date that Daniel Cormier has set for himself to retire, which, by the way, is like the most Daniel Cormier thing ever. Yeah. Just to decide you're going to retire on your 40th birthday. Uh, if, that, if that's what he's going to do, and maybe it is would be free money for him to fight Alir Latifi, but it wouldn't be the most money. And so, like, if Daniel Cormier feels like he's only got a couple shots at this thing left, I'm not sure he's going to fire one of those bullets against Alir Latifi.
1: Unless the bricklayer becomes an overnight international sensation.
0: Yeah, no, give get the guy a cape and like maybe... Uh, he don't need a cape, man. You see how he dresses normally? That's true. He's a stylish guy. He's a stylish guy. He and Yoel Romero, they might want to think about a pop-up shop. Yeah, there somewhere. you go. At one of these UFC events, maybe.
1: Yeah. You're walking through the mall and then you see Yoel and Alir's hats. Well, it's a working title. We'll come up with a better title for the business.
0: You know uh, what would excite me about Alir Latifi running a a men's store? Yeah. Bet they would have my size. (laughs) I look at Alir Latifi and I'm thinking, all right, yeah. You understand the going concerns with men's fashion these days? I feel like you
1: ask Alir Latifi if he knows a good haberdashery around here. The answer is yes. He's not going to let
0: you down. Well, oh, he doesn't, Yoel does. He'll tell you where to get some fashion glasses to go with it. Next question this week comes to us from Andy Anderson, who writes, What's up? Oh, hey. What's up? What's up, Andy Anderson? Appreciate the greeting. So I saw a lot of USADA talk in regards to Hannon Barrow, but he lost the title prior to USADA overseeing drug testing for UFC independent contractors. Do MMA fans not understand that fighters age just like regular people?
1: Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean... Also worth noting that it's not like your boy Heenan Barrio is 45 years old. He's like 30. So, but I also think that people got on this trend of being like, anybody falls off around the USADA era, we're going to point to that. And especially if you're a Brazilian fighter, then there's even more likelihood that people are going to do that to you. I don't know if that you can really point to that.
0: It's unfair, right? Because uh, most of the people that people end up pointing fingers at saying that they fell off in the quote-unquote USADA era are are fighters that we have no reason or no evidence to suggest that they were competing outside the rules beforehand. So like a guy like Henan Burrell is a perfect example. We just don't – there's no reason aside from the fact that he fell off pretty hard from the year 2014 until now. There's no reason to suspect that that had anything to do – with performance-enhancing drugs, it could also be that the guy's thirty-year-old, thirty years old, and this was his forty-first professional mixed well, martial arts. Well, now there you
1: play. go. Not just the years; it's the miles. That's what right. you're saying.
0: And and with guys that you know that that came up fighting in Brazil, that might not even be all of them, right?
1: Right. The well, good
0: chance there's more than forty fights under the monster Henan Barrau's belt at this point.
1: Plus, in the UFC, he's lost to four people: uh, T.J. Dillashaw twice, uh, well, but. T.J. Walshaw, the current champ, obviously pretty damn good fighter. Jeremy Stevens, who we'll talk about later, but on a bit of a tear, proving that he's a pretty good fighter too. Aljamain Sterling, uh, a good fighter and also a really bad stylistic matchup, I think, for Hanem Brow. And then now this one to Brian Kelleher, which is, though in fairness, the one to Brian Kelleher is the one where you start to really get into people being like, okay, that era is done. People are going to start throwing a little dirt on your grave. Do you think that's premature?
0: Uh, well, I mean, this Brian Kelleher loss is one where you look at it and you think, well, this, he doesn't look like Henan Barrow anymore. Right. And I would say I would lean more toward the age and the mileage than, you know, trying to put together a conspiracy theory about performance enhancing drugs. But, you know, having he's now what, two and five in his last seven fights, like I said, dating back to the spring of 2014. So that's a pretty long skid for Henan Barrow. Uh, it does seem like something happened, whether it was just TJ Dillashaw kind of like shattering his confidence or abruptly the competition at, you know, his weight class kind of catching up to him first at, at uh, 135 and then a, a move up to 145 that didn't really work out. And now uh, a move back down to bantamweight. It, does, it feels like he's just lost his way.
1: Well, it also feels like he had one of the quickest just kind of public eye reversals, and maybe in terms of relationship with the UFC reversals. Where remember when Henan Barrow was a monster? I think we all remember that. And the UFC, you know, the video promos for the event featured Dana White out there reading stats for Henan Barrow off a piece of paper because nothing gets you hyped quite like that. Stats. The real effort to be like, okay, Henan Barrow is our guy at bantamweight now. Really all in behind him. Then he has that bad weight cut mishap where he's supposed to fight TJ Dillashaw. He's out of that fight. Um, And then, you know, you pile up some losses after that. And now it seems like Hannon Brow, you turn around and he's just a guy you throw on a Fox card and nobody even is really talking about him.
0: Right. In answer to like the final question here that Andy Anderson writes about if MMA fans don't understand that MMA fighters just get old like everybody else, I would offer maybe as kind of like a roundabout explanation one of the reasons that we are not used to seeing guys age and kind of fall off once they get into their thirties may in fact be because of performance enhancing drugs, because True. we spent most of uh, of our MMA lives watching guys fight into their late thirties and early forties and being better than ever. Right? Like now, maybe if you are in fact dealing with a cleaner sport, maybe you guys are going to start aging more along the same trajectory that the rest of us do.
1: Well, and also that, In this era, and we've seen it with a few different fighters, some guys who start out really young and pile up a bunch of fights really quickly, and they don't age the same way as the guys who were in amateur wrestling until they were in their mid to late 20s and then only started to get into MMA after that. The the fights really do take a toll on you, and we've seen it with guys like uh, Jordan Meehan, um, maybe even to some extent with guys like uh, Rory McDonald, guys who start really, really young and... Before, you know, By the time you're 30, you're in a different zone than a guy who has only been fighting for a couple of years by the time he's 30.
0: All right, let's do this question from Brandon Boyd. He writes, Leslie Smith has been promoting yet another fighters organization called Project Spearhead. And so far, a few fighters have spoken up about joining the organization. Uh, with Dana White learning the tricks of the union-breaking trade from the Fertitas, who were notorious in keeping their stations' casinos from unionizing... And a stable of over 500 fighters, do those fighters who speak up and join the organization stand a chance of being blackballed from fighting in the UFC? Also, knowing what you know about the sport, do you honestly think there will ever be a fighters union? Uh, We appreciate
1: that question from Incubus (laughs) singer Brandon Boyd. Okay,
0: nice. Yeah. Uh, Ben, I know that we've felt a little bit remiss the last few weeks to not talk about Project Spearhead, which obviously is the latest effort uh, to unionize or at least create some kind of association for uh, mixed martial arts fighters. Maybe I am just naive in my optimism and maybe I sound like a broken record, but like, I feel like Leslie Smith is a solid person to have at the helm of this thing. And for whatever reason, this seems like a more direct appeal to UFC fighters in terms, terms of unionization than maybe uh, some of the other organizations that we've seen. Uh, and so I feel a little bit more optimistic about the the success of Project Spearhead than maybe some of the other ones. But at the same time, Incubus lead singer Brandon Boyd brings up some good points here. I still feel like at the end of the day, it's it's going to be awful hard to get a functioning union in this diverse and like differently-minded group of independent contractors who make up the UFC fighters roster. Even though I also think, like man, you got to have one eventually, or else all of the things that you see going on in the world of mixed martial arts that seem to favor the promoter over the fighter are just going to keep repeating themselves and arguably get worse.
1: Right. But that's also one of the things that makes me at times more pessimistic about it right now is because, and somebody said this when I was working on a story about the unionization and collectivization efforts that were going on, I don't know, it was last year, two years old, it all blends together for me at this point. But uh, I remember one of the managers who had a lot of experience himself with unions, like through his, his family had, had kind of come up, come up in unions and labor law and things like that. And him saying, you know. I'm sure the UFC probably feels like if they haven't done it by now, after everything that's been done to them, if the fighters have not gotten together, then they're not going to. And I could see how, you know, at this point, you wonder, like, what else? Like, it can't be about, okay, the UFC pushes you finally too far, and you all say enough's enough, and you dig your feet in, and then you get together and you do it, because that should have happened already when you look at all the different things that had been, Voiced upon them, and you know uh, there was a thing recently from MMA fighting. Uh, Mark Raymondi had a thing about how it's no longer the Reebok pay. Did you see this? That it's
0: right. Yeah, they're lumping in uh, like all of your fight week responsibilities right. if you want to get that money.
1: Right, which is basically them saying we're going to give you the same amount of money, except for the guys in the smallest tier who get a little bit of a bump, but everybody else same amount of money. Except we're adding responsibilities to it. We're adding more things you have to do throughout more days in order to get that money, and. You don't really have any say in that. You just have to say, okay, we agree to that. Same thing that you said with the drug testing and the Reebok deal and everything else. Whenever the UFC just wants to add something to the contract, they just do it. And they don't have to compensate you for it. And you don't get a voice. You don't get a seat at that table. Stuff like that just reminds you, like, fighters at this point are just used to that being the way it works.
0: Right.
1: And so that makes me wonder what is going to be the catalyst to get them to do that. I mean, I understand the, the idea behind saying like, hey... Gauge the interest level in this. Give everybody a chance to be able to say, "Hey, yeah, I would want this." And when you see stuff from like the antitrust lawsuit, where the the UFC's lawyers basically admit, "Hey, hey, it's not the UFC's monopolization of the sport keeping wages down. It's the fact that the athletes in this sport don't have a union, whereas the athletes in the sport you're comparing it to, like NFL, Major League Baseball, NBA, they do have unions." And so you're basically saying, the lack of a union keeps wages down, which the UFC wants to admit that, then that seems like something that fighters should pay attention to. And yet, you don't get the sense that they're fired up over that and going, all right, union time.
0: Well, and the thing that makes it a real thumb in the eye is like the implicit, like unspoken truth behind saying, having the UFC's council saying you you can't compare UFC wages to regular mainstream sports wages because UFC fighters don't have a union and unions uh, drive up Wages, like the other side of that coin is him tacitly admitting we're keeping wages low because we can right, right? like there's nothing to make us right, which is if I were a UFC fighter, that's the part that would really piss me off, frankly, but it doesn't seem like there is a growing tide or like a significant growing tide because of that issue
1: well and i I've seen this a couple of times where people point to like well, maybe it'll change now that endeavor is involved because it's no longer the fortitas who as uh, lead singer of Incubus, Brandon Boyd, points out, "We're very anti-union in their hotel casino business. And Endeavor, you know, they're in Hollywood. They deal with all the uh, trade unions in, in Hollywood and in the entertainment industry all the time. So maybe they're just more used to it. I don't buy that just because right now it still seems like the same USC mindset running the shop. Uh, but also just because there's a difference between being more pro-union in a situation where You are benefiting, Uh, like if you were negotiating contracts on the behalf of some actor who is benefiting from the Screen Actors Guild, yeah, you're going to be more pro-union because he gets paid more, you get paid more. But if you own the whole damn shop, there's only bad stuff that's really going to happen if fighters unionize. You're just going to have to give up more of your profits to them. That's not something I see Endeavor being in any hurry to do.
0: Yeah, and on top of, like, all of that, you don't spend $4.2 billion in a co- on a company and come into it and be like, well, the first thing we're going to do is cut into our own profits by raising our employees' wages. Yeah, let's improve working conditions. All right, last question this week from Colin in Chicago. He writes, so every morning I wake up, pre- prepare myself for numbers doing. Hmm, is he it an accountant?
1: Or does he run numbers? Okay,
0: well, there you go. Yeah, maybe he's out in the streets.
1: In Chicago.
0: <laughs> all <laughs> okay. right, we
1: settled. He, he's a numbers runner.
0: He prepares himself to do numbers, drink coffee, and read about the latest shitstorm hitting MMA. However, while checking all the latest and greatest, and this is in all caps, mixed martial arts websites this morning, I learned that Ronda Rousey put some roidy guy through a table. I get that she's an MMA legend and probably the second most famous fighter ever, but I do not care about professional wrestling at all. I find it sneaking into my morning routine mildly infuriating. Where do you guys stand on this? Is her every appearance relevant given her impact on our sport or do you think that like me or do you think like me and consider this as relevant as chuck liddell picking up his dry cleaning eh.
1: you think chuck does that himself or does he have a guy for that
0: man chuck there's no way chuck liddell has a guy to pick up his dry cleaning. also how, how chuck much Liddell is thinking about coming back to fight tito ortiz ben he doesn't have a guy picking up his dry cleaning come on
1: how much of chuck liddell's wardrobe do you think is a dry clean only because <laughs> <laughs> i don't think i've never seen a tank top that you had to dry clean I don't know how many well, board I mean, shorts you if need to still, dry clean. Maybe
0: those uh, Affliction shirts with the tinfoil all over them. Maybe uh, you got to dry clean those. Well, you definitely,
1: you definitely don't want to wash them with a, a mixed colors load. I'll tell you that much. You're going to get glitter all over everything. Uh, okay. I sympathize with numbers runner Colin from Chicago. And I like the old-timey version of him just like sitting around in a bar before the workday starts. Uh, basically doing the modern equivalent of reading the sports page before he begins his organized crime enterprise. But I, I think that this is going to be a temporary blip, or maybe I hope. It's kind of like when Brock Lesnar went back to the WWE, and it would be like, okay, people talk about what he's doing back there. How You know, he's he's gone from us. He's back in that thing. We'll talk about it a little bit. And then as time moved on, it was just like, okay, Brock Lesnar, the professional wrestler, we don't really talk about him anymore unless it's to talk about whether he's coming back to MMA. This, I feel like, is going to be the same thing. I, I understand people even people who aren't pro wrestling fans might be curious to see how it's going to work out. I mean, I'm curious, curious enough, at least to like watch the gifts on Twitter and realize, man, Ronda Rousey's WWE tenure is going to include a whole lot of scowling. Isn't it?
0: It has to, it's like the only thing she does. Right? A,
1: lot of, a lot of quiet, steely scowling. I mean, you'd rather Flipping have her, hair around too.
0: You'd rather have her scowling and, and have Paul Heyman out there cutting promos than handing the live mic to Ronda Rousey. I got to think, right?
1: Well, I'll take your word for it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if we're six months in and we're still reporting on Ronda Rousey's every pro wrestling move, I am also going to get mildly infuriated, like Colin, and I will probably also have to chalk it up to people getting desperate for MMA content on MMA websites.
0: Well, I, we're already there, man. Like, <laughs> the reason that we have all these conversations about the product and uh, the UFC product and and uh, oversaturation and all that is that like we and the people that we work for have the metrics. And right now they're not good. I'm not going to put a happy face on it. Like I understand if, if MMA websites feel like they need to get some extra traffic from Ronda Rousey's showing up at a WWE quote unquote pay-per-view event to sign a piece of paper that only has her name on it in giant letters. Uh, (laughs) I understand they want to try to milk the traffic out of that. The more interesting... That's question, how a contract works, though, right? Yeah. You show just,
1: up and they, they they hand you a paper with your own name on it in giant, like, 24-point font. And then you just sign your name under that. Isn't that... That's how every single contract I've ever had in life works.
0: One of the... the oh, about like my house? The more interesting thing to me is going to be whether... We're about to find out if MMA fans, by and large, still care about Ronda Rousey, right? And care about her enough to follow her into this new venture over there in WWE for however long it lasts. Uh, and from, from what I've been privy to so far, it doesn't seem like she's moving the needle a ton over on, uh, MMA sites at least. So it'll be interesting to see whether WWE's investment in Ronda Rousey like turns out to be, uh, you know, to bear fruit, frankly, because I think that they're betting that at least some of the Ronda Rousey fans who may or may not also be hardcore MMA fans, I don't, Still don't have a full handle on on that, but like that, some people are going to follow her over, and that she's going to create at least a little bit of a of a swell, a a ground swell in in network subscriptions and viewers for WWE. And at this point, like, man, I don't know. We're just going to have to wait and see, I guess. Well, one of the things
1: we're talking about, at least internally and and writing and and discussing some at MMA Junkie recently, is when we did a few different articles on the five year anniversary of the. Ronda Rousey, Liz Carmouche fight. You you
0: guys are over there uh, uh, cranking out five-year anniversary stories? That's
1: right. Oh, man, traffic must be off the charts. Five-year anniversary of the first women's fight in the UFC. That's actually significant. Thank you very much for noticing. Uh, But one of the things that uh, some of my colleagues mentioned, we were having this discussion kind of over Skype internally, was isn't it weird – What a transformative figure Ronda Rousey was for MMA. I mean, kind of responsible for there being women in the UFC. Now we've got like three and a half, basically, women's divisions. And yet, inside of five years, she's completely gone from the sport. Right. You just don't see that in most other sports.
0: No, she's certainly unique in that. Like, I don't recall anybody who has fallen off as hard And as quickly as Ronda Rousey had, especially not someone who was as dominant and like reached the heights that she reached in the sport. And in addition to what you just said, Ben, like I've seen it posited that Ronda Rousey is responsible for the elevation, entirely responsible for the elevation of women's wrestling in WWE. Because, uh, you know, the the bigwigs over there at WWE saw how popular Ronda Rousey was as a pay per view draw and everything else in the UFC. And that sort of uh, coincided with uh the their company's like taking the opportunity to elevate and present its uh women wrestlers on a on an even platform with the men like starting in the developmental organization and then moving on up everywhere else to to raw and smackdown and all that stuff uh so women's wrestling is is like in a better place at least in the wwe as it has ever been and, and people say that that is that ronda rousey should get entirely get the credit for that which is remarkable like i can't i also can't think of another athlete uh who has had that kind of of resonance frankly and then to have it all end is is end rapidly yeah i don't know who the mma equivalent of ken burns is but he'll be firing up that documentary to have some actor reading ronda rousey's tweets can't we just have long. ken burns do it yeah i don't i don't think he's interested in that a lot of just slow panning in and out of MMA pho-
1: like, just basically have Esther Lynn give Ken Burns all her photos. Mm-hmm. He can just pan slowly in and out, and the next thing you know, you got yourself a 12-part miniseries.
0: Yeah, have some uh, voiceover actress reading the tweets about how Sandy Hook was an inside job or whatever. Well, you just, you went there, didn't you? Well, that's, we're talking about a Ken Burns documentary. It's not like we're going to leave that stuff out. No, Ken Burns, is, he's going to uncover all that. Anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all these days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We would love to tell you it's funny. And if you don't like it, lucky you, it's really easy to unsubscribe while you're there. You can go ahead and follow the link and sign up for our Patreon as well. Become a patron of the co-main event podcast. Then we will owe you big time, right?
1: Well, that's, I mean, we're not going to kill anybody for you.
0: Well, not if Colin from Chicago signs up, who knows? We might be in, in too deep. We might already be in over our heads. I mean, we might
1: beat somebody up for you or just make a lot of cutting remarks. There
0: you go. Verbally beat somebody up.
1: Yeah. We'll verbally murder whoever you want.
0: As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. of a guy who, like Hennan Burrow, has done an awful lot of living at a relatively young age, at least in his MMA career. Jeremy Stevens goes out there and gets a big knockout victory over, and I'm going to put this in quotes, fourth-ranked featherweight contender Josh Emmett on Saturday night at UFC on Fox 28. However, the victory did not come without controversy, sir, as Jeremy Stevens landed, or tried to land, multiple illegal strikes in this fight including elbows to the back of the head uh and a knee to a downed opponent which may or may not have landed etc etc uh where are you at with this thing man because i feel like we are having the it pays to cheat in mma conversation all over again uh as we have essentially for the last seven years
1: it also feels like we're having that conversation more often recently doesn't it maybe people are starting to realize that it pays to cheat in mma <laughs> okay fair enough. All right. First of all, let's start with the elbows, because I feel like the elbows I can kind of give him a pass on, just because of what was happening in this situation, right? He drops Josh Emmett with that left hook, then he's pouncing on him, trying to finish. Basically, he's trying to do to Josh Emmett what Josh Emmett was unable to do to him when Josh Emmett had dropped him earlier in the fight, and wasn't able to get in there and finish. And so he's really going after him, he's trying to hit him with those elbows, and Josh Emmett is moving. It's not like he's just laying there and targeting the back of his head. So, you know, he hits one where it's kind of borderline, and then he hits another where, okay, that definitely hits him in the back of the head. But it's also that Josh Emmett is moving as he's throwing these elbows. So, okay, you you can make the case there that that's unintentional, and that's just heat of the moment, uh, everything happening really fast kind of stuff. But then when he gets up, and Josh Emmett is down on one knee, which that's a, a downed opponent absolutely everywhere. It doesn't matter, new unified rules, old unified rules, and I agree, and I think we'll talk more about this later, that that's a problem, that we have to have this conversation before every event, like what is exactly allowed, which part of the unified rules have you adopted, which part haven't you, Uh, that's silly, it defeats the purpose of having unified rules, but he's down on one knee, you can't knee or kick a guy in the head when he's down on one knee, basically anywhere except for Japan, so... You know this, especially if you were a veteran fighter, Jeremy Stevens, who's been at it for like 15 years. You fought like two thirds of your career in the UFC. You ought to know this. And then he hauls off and tries to hit him in the head with a knee. Now, I've watched that replay just dozens of times at this point, and I don't think you can conclusively say one way or another that he did hit him or didn't hit him.
0: Right. And it shouldn't matter, right? Okay. With that that's kind the of strike, point, it though. shouldn't matter.
1: He and Jeremy Stevens' comments after the fight suggest that he was definitely trying to hit him in the head with a knee while he was down because, at least according to Jeremy Stevens, from what Big Dan Miragliata had said to him before the fight trying to clarify the rules, it sounds like Jeremy Stevens at least is telling us that he misunderstood, that Dan is trying to clarify the how the hand positioning can make you a downed opponent, but all that it doesn't matter if your knee is down. If your knee is down, you're just down. The hand positioning stuff doesn't matter. And at least Jeremy Stevens is trying to say that he misunderstood that and thought that that was going to be a legal knee, which if you think about it for even two seconds, you realize like you're saying basically a guy could be lying on his side, but as long as his hands are not touching the mat, you can just go ahead and stop his head. Like obviously not. So he should have known better, but you're going on and you're, you and a lot of people are getting caught up in this argument about, well, Hey, if the knee didn't land, then it's not illegal. And Dominic Cruz is kind of trying to make that, that same argument. That's not an illegal knee. If you don't land it there, and if Dan Mirgliata saw that it missed, then he has no place to step in and even pause the bout uh, because that would be interfering in it. And, you know, that whole question we always get into that if you, if the the referees want to take a hands-off mode because they don't want to be seen as intervening in the bout at all. But then that also suggests like, if you and I are fighting Chad and you're down on the ground and I'm trying to stomp your head, I'm clearly trying to do that. And you're just moving your head just enough. To keep from getting stomped.
0: Which I would. Because my head movement is impeccable.
1: And you have an incentive. To move your head. To keep it from getting stomped. Like. You do not want to have that happen. Even if you're laying there going. Seems like Ben's trying to cheat. Seems like he is trying to go outside the rules to hurt me. You're still not going to lay there and be like. I'll get him. I'll just let him walk right into my trap. I'll let him stomp me right in the head. Like you. Josh Emmett in that situation. Has an incentive to duck his head. To try to avoid that illegal knee. But if you're saying. That that's totally fine. Like, you're forcing the other guy to take defensive maneuvers to avoid your foul. Like, the onus is on him. And if he's doing that, then he's not doing other stuff that he might be doing to get up or defend or or counterattack or anything. Then you're weighting things even more heavily in favor of cheating. That's just ludicrous.
0: It's almost like we need to start the entire discussion over again. Like, build the rules from the ground up. Because right now, we can't even agree when you should enforce the rules. And frankly, at this point, having reviewed this Jeremy Stevens, Josh Emmett fight, I don't know how you would enforce this rule or any of these rules because it all happens so fast. And you mentioned the elbows to the back of the head rule and strikes to the back of the head of all of the mixed martial arts rules that cause consternation. Strikes to the back of the head is almost the least workable rule. I think that you have to have that rule because clearly it's dangerous to strike someone in the back of the head. And at this point, we already have that rule. So it would be weird to take it out and be like, okay, open season on the back of the head, everyone. But, like, the rule itself is unenforceable. You can't enforce it. It's like a holding in football. If you wanted to call holding on every play in football, you probably could. Someone's out there getting held. In a lot of fights where you go to a weird scramble on the ground where somebody is throwing punches from the top, people get hit in the back of the head. It just happens constantly. So, But,
1: I mean, the rule has changed, like, in uh, action to where if if you're scrambling around and somebody's getting hit in the back of the head, you don't see that called very often. Right. If you're, But if you're mounted on somebody's back and you're just hauling off and hitting them in the back of the head, like, that will be called. So I feel like that one is... In practice, it has taken a workable shape,
0: for the most part. But my thing continues to be, how on earth could you expect anyone in the world, Dan Mergliata or anybody, to officiate this sport in real time? It all happens so goddamn fast. Jeremy Stevens elbows Josh Emmett twice in the back of the head. Then in a scramble, he tries to throw an illegal knee. And literally moments later right seconds later the fight is over and josh emmett is unconscious like right. if you're dan Mergliotta, what do you even do okay and
1: uh, let me first start my answer by saying you're right this is a super hard job this situation in particular happened so fast that it, i don't think that we want to go overboard criticizing dan Mergliotta here because that was a really tough one at the same time the moment he throws that knee and you realize that it's illegal. The guy's got his knee on the ground and he throws an illegal knee at the guy's head.
0: I think that's where you pause the fight. I, I don't... Do you think you can even process that before Jeremy Stevens is flying through the air, landing Dan Henderson-style elbows to the face of Josh Emmett? The whole thing takes like
1: two seconds. I know. They processed it on the broadcast, though. I mean, immediately you heard people going, whoa, uh, you know, and... It but looks, they're also watching monitors, and we're watching at home. Dan Bergliotta is in the cage, Right, true. But it looked for a second like he was going to jump in there, didn't it? Like, and then he kind of held back, maybe because he realized, like, okay, if you don't do it right away, you can't do it. And then the fight's all already over, and what do you do then? that? Like, it seemed like – I agree. It's a really tough window there to jump in there. But for people – people making the argument saying, like, hey, if the knee doesn't land, you can't do anything. And I – I just don't see the logic behind that. Because if you're trying to land an illegal blow, even if the guy avoids it, that, I think, is reason enough for the referee to stop and step in there and pause it. And if you're going to complain, if you're the other guy, by saying, hey, I had him hurt, I was about to finish it there, you intervened, you gave him a chance to recover. No, you gave him a chance to recover. If the penalty for trying to land an illegal blow, whether you land it or not, is that your opponent gets a second to breathe, I feel like that's a fair penalty. I, that that seems like workable to me. I'm not gonna get upset because somebody, you know, tried and failed to commit a foul and therefore lost the momentum or the advantageous position that they had. I mean, that seems like a punishment fitting the crime kind of thing. And it seems like though especially if you can't be sure that, that if that knee landed or not, and I don't care. Go watch that replay from every angle you can. You can't tell me one way or another that it absolutely did or that it absolutely didn't. I mean, the people who sang... It missed, didn't land. You you can't tell that any more than people saying that it absolutely did land. You, you just can't from that angle. So I think that in that situation, it's perfectly reasonable for the referee to step in there for a pause and check things out. Because you you hauled off and tried to commit a foul.
0: Right. And I'm just saying I don't know how he would step in in that situation. And I think that, like, the, the further we get into this sport, like, the more I think you got to just – like kind of recalibrate how we do everything in terms of officiating and rules and, and like how you enforce the rules and what constitutes a foul. And I, I believe firmly at this point that it's next to impossible to expect one person to go out there and enforce the rules in real time as this fight is happening. And in addition to that, like if we can't even agree, if a, if it's a foul, if the blow doesn't land, if we can't even agree on whether or not intent is, uh, should be considered or or you know what a foul is then like man we got a long way to go it's almost like the the conversation like no one is clear on what the conversation should even be at this point which when you're 25 years into a sport eh kind of a problem
1: yeah well and you know I, I wrote about this a little bit today but just the whole idea of like we have the unified rules but before each event you got to sit down and talk about what they are and they won't like for instance with this one uh some of the new unified rules are in effect but he can't look at the replay. You, the referee can't use the replay to determine anything about the fight. It, stuff like that, it just seems like we, we don't seem to be on a path to making the rules better. Uh, we seem to be just making them more confusing. Uh, that's the part that's kind of discouraging, is it seems like we can sit here and talk about, like, here's what changes might be, be necessary to the rules. Here's what would give us greater clarity or anything. And it doesn't seem like we're doing that seems like we're getting further away from that.
0: Right. And even if you did, like, if you totally recalibrated the rules and the thing that happened was that a lot more fights ended up in no contest, would we then have to have an additional conversation about did, this, did these changes make the sport better or did we just result in, like, even more uh, tomfoolery than before? True. But I also think
1: the argument that, like, hey, if you actually enforced MMA's rules, it would lead to a lot more unsatisfying results. Maybe it would lead to people being a little bit more careful to follow the rules. Yeah, There's right. also, also that possibility. I mean, we don't know because we haven't tried it. Yeah.
0: All right, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, this week, I'm just saying my Are You Fucking Kidding Me is we're going to do the Brock Lesnar thing again. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> ben, Brock Lesnar puts on a UFC team. It's weird that every time Brock Lesnar's contract is about to be up, He puts on his UFC t-shirt or something and poses for a photo, and we end up doing the Brock Lesnar thing all over again. Yep. You fucking kidding me? I feel like we're going to do the Brock Lesnar thing for the rest of our lives until Brock Lesnar lopes into the distance and disappears in the frozen white north like an aging Frankenstein, only to be occasionally spotted moving across the horizon as the moon tracks up the sky behind him. That's beautiful. Are you fucking kidding me. I'm We're going to do it. the Brock Lesnar thing again. I'm We led to this a bit of poetry.
1: I'm not really that upset about it anymore. Well, Chad, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to Colby Covington, his use of Twitter, after Platinum Mike Perry goes out there and loses another fight. I'm not going to read Colby Covington's tweet here. But it's obvious that he sat down and you can go find it yourself and he wants to talk about Mike Perry's girlfriend and the per- possible uh, you know, hypothesis about Mike Perry's parentage. And it seems like Colby Covington understands that what he has to do in order to keep this gimmick working is be outrageous. But he doesn't understand that you're also supposed to be at least in some way kind of fun or charming about it. Instead just kind of an asshole to the point where it makes you embarrassed for him are you fucking kidding me you you don't really quite understand how this gimmick is supposed to work i think you fucking kidding me you're trying to do the Chilson and playbook but you missed a few pages
0: you fucking, fucking, fucking kidding me that's going to do it for round number 1 we will be right back with round number 2
1: Conor McGregor has so much goddamn money, he may never fight again. Or, in an alternative timeline, he may fight twice in this calendar year alone, including just late notice fill-ins. What the hell's going on here, man? Also, I know we're going to get around to this question about the turtleneck, which you said looks like the Hamburglar?
0: I was hoping you wouldn't call me out on that because it doesn't actually look like the physical representation of the Hamburglar. No but it looks no, like it does conor not. mcgregor just committed a crime it does and i guess what my introduction presupposes is maybe that crime was he stole a bunch of hamburgers
1: <laughs> well that is thin that's really thin it, it i saw that instagram post of him walking down the street with his turtleneck pulled up to like his the bridge of his nose and i thought is this the moment when we realize that conor mcgregor's secret shame is he doesn't know how turtlenecks work
0: and I followed up with, for all you and I know, maybe those high-end turtlenecks that Conor McGregor wears are meant to be worn that way.
1: Okay, so maybe like, maybe if you're buying a turtleneck where the price tag has a comma on it, you want to get all you can out of it. You don't want to like just fold it over. You want to just get all the fabric out there for people to see.
0: Right, because last we heard, remember Conor McGregor was giving us a tutorial on whether or not you're supposed to wear a belt when you wear a three-piece suit? Which, frankly, is a, uh, is something I've never even considered before. So, what's the verdict? We don't keep me hanging. He says you're not supposed to. Okay, but like a Suspenders stunt? I think so. I think that's where we're at. But like, if that's the level he's on. Who am I to question how the man wears a turtleneck? He's clearly doing it right.
1: Well, I don't either. even have
0: a turtleneck. This I'm out here looking like an idiot not even having a turtleneck, Ben.
1: This is how you get into an emperor has no clothes scenario, is you just accept any fashion mistake the guy makes as some genius you don't understand.
0: Conor McGregor is a genius. Uh, so this all happened on the same day. And we we wrote about it a little bit in The Breakfast of Champions, but I feel like it deserves a little bit more discussion here on the podcast proper. Basically what happened was... Uh, Dave Meltzer reported in the pro wrestling observer newsletter that things are going well between Conor McGregor and the UFC in terms of negotiations to get him to come back to the octagon that the company may in fact want him to fight twice during 2018, which if that's what they want, whoo, better get a move on that same day. TMZ sports catches up with Dana white out on the street, of course, because Dana White's just out wandering around and I'm going to put, and like we did in the BOC, I'm going to put caught up in quotation marks, <laughs> uh, And Dana White kind of refuses to say whether or not he will strip Conor McGregor before uh, Tony Ferguson and Habib Nurmagomedov fight at UFC 223, I believe. Strongly implies, though. He strongly implies that they will. But while he's doing that, he's kind of nodding and smiling and just being like, right, right. Like, it's almost like Dana White is like, how crazy is this? Can you believe it, guys? Whoa, how did we get here?
1: Well, that seems to be his, uh, reaction whenever he's dealing with the TMZ cameras, right? We're dealing with the actual MMA media. He's pissed off all the time when TMZ catches up with Dana White, uh, who, yeah, you It's know,
0: weird that he would have a more friendly relationship with TMZ
1: Sports. Luckily, they managed to find just kind of out on the streets. I wonder
0: why. I wonder why he would have more, oh, uh, never mind. Uh,
1: every, every question they ask, uh, his answer begins with like a chuckle, like a, a good hearted chuckle. Uh, but then, yeah, like he, he stops just like the, The guy behind the camera, whoever it is, in true TMZ style, uh, is actually doing a pretty good job of being like, so you're just going to strip him on fight week, right? And Dana White being like, oh, you know, no, it's for the real title. And then things like, well, yeah, so that means he can't be the champion. You're going to strip him on fight week. And Dana White says basically, well, Conor understands the business. And hey, Conor may never fight again. And so then you have this flip side where Conor McGregor is insisting that he will and that he is even doing the thing of offering the jump in there invite somebody which like just to save a card which man that is a departure from the more recent conor mcgregor narrative of like you need to build entire pay-per-view events if not stadiums around me
0: uh so what do we make of this claim by conor mcgregor that he offered to step in to fight frankie edgar uh on short notice at ufc 222 and i believe in the instagram post he sort of implies that the ufc didn't have enough money to pay him Like he said that the UFC didn't have enough, like didn't have enough time to generate the money or whatever. I don't, I honestly don't know how we're supposed to take that. But like, uh, what do we, what do you make of that claim? Is that just total baloney or is Conor McGregor, uh, so crazy he's, he's actually offering to do that.
1: The quote is that he was told there wasn't enough time to generate the money that the UFC would need.
0: And uh, I'm going to say again, I have no idea what that means.
1: I think that means that they didn't feel like there would be enough time to sufficiently promote the bout in order to get the most out of it so that they would make enough money to make paying Conor McGregor his asking price worth it. That's my reading of it anyway.
0: So we're reading between the lines saying Conor McGregor offered to fight Frankie Edgar for $1 billion or something like that.
1: Well, and you have to... Like, let's say – let's take it on face value that he did offer to step in there and fight Frankie Edgar. Is that an offer he expects to be taken up on? Or is that just a thing – is that a negotiating ploy? Basically saying like, oh, yeah, you you say that I won't fight. You're doing the thing to to Conor McGregor now that you did to George St. Pierre before when he wasn't going along the way you wanted him to in contract negotiations. Remember that? When – they wanted him to fight Bisping in a certain timeline, and then he he wanted a different timeline. The USC said, forget it. You're not getting the fight at all. Dana White goes out there and says, you know what? I think it is. I think George St. Pierre just doesn't want to fight anymore. I, I don't I don't know what it is. And George St. Pierre stays the course and gets the fight at the time he wants and just makes everybody dance to his tune. Is that what Conor McGregor is doing here of saying, like, oh, you want to go out around and tell people I don't want to fight? How about I heard you need a guy next weekend. Uh, how about that? I'll step in there. And knowing that the UFC is going to be like, yeah, we had something else in mind for you.
0: You know what? If Conor McGregor is doing that, offering to take a fight that he knows that the UFC will turn down for him. That's kind of a UFC style move, man. Like
1: you're saying he's using their own playbook against them in a,
0: in a way. Yeah. Anyway, we're in a bit of a conundrum here, aren't we, Ben? Because like uh, we've got this fight set up UFC 223 T-Ferg versus Nurmi. Uh, they're saying it's for the quote unquote real title, but they also are not explicitly saying that they are going to strip Conor McGregor. Uh, something's got to give here, doesn't it? Are we going to emerge from UFC 223 with two quote unquote real lightweight champs? Is Conor McGregor ever going to return? Is he going to get stripped? What's your best guess as to where all of this is headed?
1: You know, I read, uh, Ali Abdelaziz's uh take on the whole real belts not stripping Conor McGregor thing uh on MMA Junkie and for most of it I was making the like the face that my dog makes when he hears a bird on TV uh just feeling like he's not making any sense but the one thing he said that did make sense to me was hey they strip him on fight week and now Conor McGregor is stripped and this fight will be for the real title then it's a handy promotional tool for that pay-per-view. You, you're you using Conor McGregor to get this fight in the news a little more, which, okay, I can see, at least from the UFC's perspective, the logic behind doing it that way. Uh, but then the question for me is what comes next? Because it's not as easy as just saying, hey, we took the belt away from Conor McGregor, therefore the winner of this is the real champ. Because, you know, like we've talked about before title belts are basically the same thing as money. If people don't believe in it, it doesn't work. It doesn't have actually have any value in itself. Uh, so you, you have to get people to think of whoever wins that as the champion in order for that to really have that value. And it's not so easy. Just take a belt from somebody and give it to somebody else. So do you alienate Conor McGregor more? If you do that, do you feel like, okay, he's going to be in on it. Do you feel like he's going to see the promotional value of, uh, Creating news and then having him fight the winner of that. I don't know. I mean, my best guess would be they strip him on fight week, and unless something terrible goes wrong and everybody has to like scramble due to injury or illness or something like that, he fights the winner of T. Ferg and Nermy.
0: Here's a question Do you think that you, if you are the UFC, promotionally speaking, are you better off if you strip Conor McGregor the week of UFC 223 or? If you emerge from UFC 223 with two quote-unquote real lightweight champions. That'll be some bullshit. You can't go like, into well, this. Well, either way, it's some bullshit, right? Like, either way, you you are...
1: It's less bullshit if you strip him. I mean, even if, even if you're playing the game of waiting until you feel like it's the maximum news value for you, you can't tell me it's the real title and not strip him. You just... The logic does not work.
0: I'm just saying... Even though it's illogical, I could kind of see the UFC emerging from 223 with two lightweight champions and then kind of throwing up its hands and being like, oh, no, whatever will we do? We have two (laughs) lightweight champions. Uh, And, like, I don't know if you further force Conor McGregor's hand by doing that. Of course, the million-dollar question to me in all of this is not if Conor McGregor returns to the UFC, but, like, Assuming that Conor McGregor does come back to the octagon, what are the chances that he will stoop to fight either Tony Ferguson or Habib Nurmagomedov? Because you still, no matter what happens between those guys, either one of them will represent the most poisonous combination in combat sports, that being a super tough fight for Conor McGregor, for what could be the lowest possible return. Like, if you're Conor McGregor, and you come back to the UFC, do you fight the winner of Tony Ferguson versus Habib Nurmagomedov? Or do you fight Nate Diaz a third time? Or do you do something totally crazy and head up to 170 to either fight for the title there or have a super fight against another guy who might never fight again in George St. Pierre? Like, if I'm Conor McGregor, the least attractive of all of those, is it not, is the winner of Ferguson versus Nurmagomedov.
1: Unless you feel like you have something to prove there, unless you feel like the, you want to do the one thing that everybody says, you you don't have the balls to do. I, I could see that. And I think at this point, he doesn't need to do any kind of fine tooth comb to determine who is going to be the absolute biggest matchup because he brings the big matchup where he goes. It's, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference in pay-per-view buys between Conor McGregor Nate Diaz 3 and Conor McGregor versus the winner of this fight, do you? Do you feel like there's, you know, half a million pay-per-view
0: buy difference between those two options? Between Diaz and the winner of this fight? Yes. Maybe, I don't know, man, I guess it depends on uh it depends on how much diaz would bring to the table i guess which which is a question that we have not yet answered
1: well i also if they if, if it ends up being conor mcgregor versus uh Nermy, i'll just say stay ready Nate diaz stay ready stay by the phone
0: anyway that's gonna do it for round number two we will be right back with round number three Ben, UFC 222 comes our way this weekend from Paradise, Nevada at the T-Mobile Center. Main event of this thing, Chris Cyborg defending her women's featherweight title against Yana Kunitskaya and a co-main event, a featherweight fight featuring Frankie Edgar taking on Brian Ortega. Uh, you and I were talking right before we started recording this round about how infrequently people main event UFC fights in their first fight in the promotion, but that is what Yana Kunitskaya is going to do here. We can only think of a handful. I'm sure we're probably missing some uh, obvious ones, but obviously Ronda Rousey and Liz Carmouche main evented their first UFC fights at UFC 157. Joe Soto did it against TJ Dillashaw at UFC 177. Patrick Cote did it against Tito Ortiz at UFC 50. And uh, most recently, Lena Landsberg did it against Chris Cyborg in September of 2016. So maybe what we're seeing here actually Obviously, what we're seeing here is sort of the cyborg effect, is it not? That the UFC is still potentially having such a hard time finding opponents for Chris Cyborg that uh, you see it becoming at least slightly more, uh, you know, usual that a, a fighter will come in and fight Chris Cyborg with no history in the UFC whatsoever.
1: Right, uh, and that if we take away the main event distinction, uh, same thing happened with Tanya Evinger. She came in and her first fight in the UFC was against Chris Cyborg. It's basically like agreeing to fight Chris Cyborg is kind of the deal with the devil that you have to make uh, in some cases in order to get a UFC contract. You go in there, you take your ass whipping, and then you're in. Hey, congratulations, welcome to the party. So yeah, that is a little weird because it feels like we keep waiting for there to be a bigger plan with Chris Cyborg for the UFC. And especially when you know Dana White had admitted not too long ago that they felt like they made some mistakes promoting Chris Cyborg, which that's newsworthy right there. The UFC feeling like they had made some mistakes promotionally. You never hear too many admissions like that. And then what we see, it seems, is we're just going to keep having Chris Cyborg beat up bantamweights. And we're just going to find them one at a time, pluck them out, and give them to the Chris Cyborg. And we're not going to build a division beyond that. And it seems like if we're waiting for another plan to materialize, how long do you wait before you tell yourself that plan ain't coming?
0: Well, you can't wait too long because Chris Cyborg is not getting any younger. Uh, At least in Yana Kunitskaya, you've got a person who has fought at Women's Featherweight before, uh, and a person who I know that there had been talk about her moving up to fight in Featherweight in the future uh, at Invicta. Of course, uh, she comes into this thing as the... Invicta FC women's bantamweight champion. So you also make a, a, a you know, a perfectly valid point that we're still have, sort of having Chris Cyborg fight 135 pounders. And short of there being a, a legitimate women's 145 pound division in the UFC, I don't even know what your other options are. Uh, but yeah, so you get Chris Cyborg out here fighting a relative unknown and Yana Kunitskaya, a person who will be coming up from 135 to fight Chris Cyborg at 145. And it does feel like history just sort of keeps repeating itself here with Chris Cyborg. Of course, Ben, is it possible that we should see this fight as a sign that the relationship between Chris Cyborg and the UFC is warming? Because in the past, it seemed like getting Chris Cyborg into the cage was like pulling teeth. And I don't know where you want to place the blame in that relationship, because we all know uh, there there could be blame to be placed on both sides. But it just seemed like the UFC had a hard time getting Chris Cyborg to to take fights and they, they had a hard time uh, coming to terms on a financial agreement. And then all of a sudden at UFC 222, here she is stepping in on short notice to quote unquote, save this event after uh, you know, the main events and co-main events that we thought we might get didn't materialize.
1: Does that say more about what Chris Cyborg thinks of this matchup though?
0: I mean, maybe, yeah. I don't know that she would think that this matchup is any different than any of her other UFC matchups though.
1: Well, maybe, or maybe that if you're trying to put together a fight between her and Amanda Nunes, then then you're thinking, okay, that's a champion versus champion thing. It's got to be a big deal, and you maybe you want a little more money. And if they say, uh, how about uh, what looks like easy work for you, jump in there, do us a solid, and then we'll we'll table this other discussion for later.
0: Are you saying that this is a Daniel Cormier, Alir Latifi situation for Chris Cyborg?
1: Well, I'm saying that Chris Cyborg is going off right now at about a 17-to-1 favorite. 17-to-1? That's what I'm looking at.
0: Woo, doggy.
1: Yana Kunitskaya, if you got 20 bucks you never want to see again, is an 11-to-1 underdog.
0: Okay, all right. I'm not sure that I'm going to put that bet down. might keep my $20 in my pocket this time around, but uh,
1: really, it's so good to know. The best argument I can make in favor of you making that bet is that... If ever there were going to be a time where the MMA gods were going to get a little meddlesome with the career of Chris Cyborg, wouldn't it be at a time when it seems like she took a fight just thinking like, okay, well, this will be an easy one to just fill up the calendar until the big one?
0: I mean, I guess if you were following the logic of this is MMA, so the worst thing that could possibly happen is going to happen, which I have been known to follow that logic in the past, then yeah, you got a live dog here in Yana Kuniskaya. Ben, let's talk a little bit about the uh, co-main event here before we end the show. Obviously Frankie Edgar was supposed to main event this thing against Max Holloway fighting for the featherweight title. Conor McGregor alleging that he offered to step in to fight Frankie Edgar here as well. End of the day, you get the old man Frankie Edgar against the up-and-comer T-City Brian Ortega. Uh, This seems like an interesting fight to me. As we said on the show a couple weeks ago, the last time the UFC tried to throw Frankie Edgar out there with a highly touted young prospect, uh, he just beat the brakes off Yair Rodriguez. Clearly Brian Ortega... Um, has had a penchant for late victories in fights that he arguably was behind on the scorecards. What do you make of this as a matchup of Styles here? Uh, The sort of like slick boxing takedown artist in Frankie Edgar against Brian Ortega, a a big guy for the weight class who has, uh, you know, good but not outstanding striking and a guy whose uh, submission skills are uh, from another planet. As conflicted
1: as I know you are about this fight, two of your guys – from, from kind of different ends of the guy spectrum for you uh, going at it against each other. There's a lot I really like about it, just as ter- in terms of like a litmus test for both guys to see. It's basically a question to see, can both guys keep being the person that they are? Because Frankie Edgar's thing recently has been, like you say, smashing these prospects who want to jump ahead of him in line for a title fight while he waits for just the stars to align and him to, uh, to get in a title fight. And then Brian Ortega's thing increasingly is even when you know he's going to catch you in a, in a submission, he catches you anyway. And so they both are facing like a different kind of like a next level test of that thing. Can you keep smashing this project prospect? Can you keep catching even this savvy competitor who by now everybody knows what you want to do? Can you still do it? I really love that aspect of it because one way or another, somebody's, somebody's got to prove that they can still do their thing and the other person's going to figure out that they can't.
0: Yeah. Frankie Edgar has only lost to, to Jose Aldo at 145 pounds. Uh, and on paper, he seems like kind of a nightmare matchup for Brian Ortega in that I do think that he'll have the striking advantage. Uh, Ortega will obviously have a reach and height advantage, but it just seems like what we've seen from Frankie Edgar's boxing in the past, Edgar will find a way to get around that. And as I said before, he's, he's got those slick fast kind of knee tap takedowns that he hits and then he gets out of trouble uh before he can really get get tangled up on the ground in a lot of situations he's also never lost by submission so he's got a a number of things going for him on the other hand as i said brian ortega's submission game uh really makes him the wild card here because in in previous fights there have been situations where uh it seemed like Ortega was going to be down and out, maybe drop his first uh, career loss as a professional MMA fighter. And then in the corner between rounds, Henry Gracie says, Hey, why don't you do this thing? And then Brian Ortega goes out there and chokes a guy out right immediately. So uh, that makes this, that in and of itself to me makes this a really, really interesting fight.
1: Yeah. Although I'm really, I'm, I'm curious about the emotional turmoil you're feeling right now. It's going
0: to be a lot of emotional tur- turmoil. Uh I guess I've made peace with it at this point, given that we're just, you know, less than a week out. Uh, and Team Dundas is going to pick up the pieces and move forward no matter what happens here. Lord willing, uh, we're going to focus on what we can control, block out everything else, take it one day at a time. Check, check, check. And uh, what else can I say? Uh, it is what it is. <laughs> you know... How's that?
1: One way to think of it is that either way this goes, one of Team Dundas' guys gets a win. There you go. The other way to think there of you it go. is that... Any way it goes, it's going to be a somber night for Team Dundas. Yeah. Crying be, over your jalapeno poppers down at Cubby Sampson's.
0: It's going to be bittersweet. That's that's for sure. All right, Ben, let's do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what is your Just Saying Stuff? Well,
1: have you heard Tito Ortiz trying to talk Chuck Liddell into a third fight?
0: Yeah, man. We talked about it earlier in the show when oh. we talked about whether Chuck Liddell pays an additional person to pick up his dry cleaning.
1: That's right. The dry cleaning. All oh, the dry cleaning Chuck Liddell does. Anyway, I know you've heard about it. That was just kind of a rhetorical exercise. I'm just saying, I'm going to say right now on record that a Chuck Liddell, Tito Ortiz fight is MMA's canary in the coal mine right now. Because you've got Dana White continuing to say, no, I, I like Chuck Liddell. He's almost 50 years old. I don't want to see him fight again. He shouldn't be fighting. Everybody seems to accept that logic. Now, if we get desperate enough And we decide, even though it's terrible and it's a bad idea, but we will make some money, and we we are desperate for that money. And we actually make this fight. That's when you'll know we have hit kind of a red alert status for MMA. That's when you know we're we're kind of spiraling down the drain. Is when we throw all those concerns aside and make this fight anyway. Are you
0: saying that uh, we'll be at like Chuck Con one?
1: (laughs) I'm just saying. If you wake up one morning and you see a headline that says Tito Ortiz chocolate L three finalized for UFC, you know two thirty one or something, brother, get in the bomb shelter.
0: Yeah, I follow your logic. If we do this in the UFC, then then you know we put the we put the UFC flag upside down, right, to signalize distress. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, we do. But if we do it in Bellator, it's just another day, right? It's just another weekend on the Bellator calendar.
1: Listen. What are you trying to pull here? You're normalizing this. I guess I am. That's what you're doing. I guess I am.
0: Well, Ben, uh, something kind of disturbing dawned on me this past weekend when I was catching up on UFC Fox 28. Uh, This being a Fox card, obviously one of the shorter UFC events. I'm sitting there. I didn't watch it live, so I'm fast-forwarding through commercials, fast-forwarding through all of the hype. I'm just saying it dawned on me, Ben, that the UFC has largely become a fast-forwardable product. Which didn't used to be the case. Used to be the case that you wanted to see all this shit. But at this point, I'm sitting at home, fast forwarding through all the UFC 222 hype, fast forwarding through the OSP Alir Latifi hype, fast forwarding through the Josh Emmett uh, versus Jeremy Stevens hype. And I guess at the end of the day, man, that is not a good thing for the UFC. And I'm guessing that that's not an easy thing to come back from. Once your fans realize, oh, I'll just fast forward through all of this and watch all of the actual fighting in about 20 minutes and skip the other uh, hour and 40 minutes that I would spend sitting at home watching this thing on Fox. just saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to tell you about all the stuff that happens at UFC 222, Cyborg versus Kunitskaya, and then look ahead to... Fabrizio Verdum versus Alexander Volkoff at UFC Fight Night 127 from the O2 in London, England. Have you seen the poster for this thing? No, I have not. It's actually kind of interesting. You should check it out. Uh, as for right now, though, we are done. We huh. are through. We are out. Is it a bullseye? Yeah, or like uh, British. Like, isn't that the, what would be on the side of like a World War One flying machine from uh, from Britain? Does it have, like, the, the blue and red target on the side? say flying machine? Oh, yeah, it's World War One, man. What would you call
1: it? Also, I want to know what you're going to do with all this extra time you have now that you realize you can just fast forward and get through in a tidy 20 minutes. Knitting. Okay. See, I was, was going to say, I was going to say, Italian or something? Bitcoin mining. Okay. Yeah. Well, I look at you, I, I just, I
0: scream, Bitcoin miner. Maybe I'll take a snowshoeing and... Back.